This week, a newly discovered Archaeopteryx skeleton sports some fancy clothes. You have the typical wing feathers, and then you have feathers on the legs, and these were then forming like feather trousers. And as the centenary of the First World War approaches, we look at how the war allowed more women to enter science, but not on equal terms. The women were very patronised. They were paid far less than the men for the same work. They were given the very boring, repetitive work. And that had a permanent effect on science, even going on after the war. Plus, predicting future binge drinking in teenagers. You're listening to The Nature Podcast for July the 3rd, 2014. I'm Thea Cunningham. And I'm Kerry Smith. In the mid-19th century, a fossil was discovered in a quarry in Bavaria, southern Germany. It had teeth and claws like a reptile and feathers like a bird. Scientists named it Archaeopteryx, the earliest known flying bird. Since then, Archaeopteryx has become the yardstick for bird evolution. One big question in the field is how feathers evolved and what for. Did they evolve for flight or for something else and just end up being used to get airborne? Most Archaeopteryx specimens have poorly preserved feathers, so they haven't been able to settle the debate. But this week, a new Archaeopteryx fossil swoops into nature. It's the 11th Archaeopteryx skeleton to be uncovered, but it's unlike the rest because it has feathers preserved all over its body, including its legs, which would suggest that feathers evolved for reasons other than flight. A team in Germany has been studying the fossil, and I called Oliver Rauhut, curator of the Bavarian State Collection for Paleontology and Geology in Munich. The plumage of this new Archaeopteryx is especially well preserved. We knew from other Archaeopteryx specimens the wing feathers and some aspects about the tail feathers, but for the first time in an Archaeopteryx we now have the complete body plumage basically preserved. So we have feathers from the body, we have feathers from the legs, we have very well preserved wing feathers, we have very well preserved tail feathers. So that means that we basically now get a complete picture of what the plumage of of Archaeopteryx might have looked like. So were the feathers on different parts of the body different? The feathers are different on different parts of the body. You have the typical wing feathers, that means these are very long feathers, that are clearly asymmetrical. This asymmetric shape in the feathers gives them an aerodynamic function. They function as as an airfoil. And then you have relatively long feathers on the legs, and these were then forming like feather trousers. And then you have shorter and somewhat more flexible concha feathers also along the body. I, I can't help but notice you mentioned feather trousers there. What use are feathers on legs? Well, feathers on legs, of course, can have um, several different functions. So one thing is, is of course, thermoregulation as well, as in in other parts of the body. And um, then if you have elongate feathers on the the legs, one thing, for example, that they help for in modern birds, in modern birds of prey, is stabilizing the body during landing and whatever in in these birds. So they don't have a real aerodynamic function, but they still um, have a certain function in the the locomotion of these animals. What does this new fossil tell you about the evolution of feathers and where they began? Well, one of the things that we did was that um, we used this this new fossil that, as I said, uh, shows the feather preservation in, in all parts of the body, to actually look at the distribution of feathers in predatory dinosaurs and their descendants, early birds. 
to not only look at if feathers were present or not, but also like in which parts of the body were they present and what did the plumage in these parts of the body look like. So um, we tracked feather distribution over the evolutionary history, let's say, of the transition from, from predatory dinosaurs to birds. And it turned out that the distribution of feathers is very variable in these animals. And that suggests that feathers did not primarily evolve for flight, that they had different functions before. And then basically when these animals started getting airborne, they used these feathers to um, form the airfoil. If they didn't evolve for flight, what were early feathers there for, especially these ones on the legs? Well, there are several possible functions for feathers. One thing is, of course, um, display. So basically just um, to be used in in social interactions in these animals, very much as in in, in modern birds as well. Um, Other possible functions include, for example, also locomotion, like at fast running, for example, modern-day ostriches, when when they change directions, they use their arms that still have relatively long feathers to balance the body. And of course, then, for example, in breeding to protect and, and shade the eggs. And so there's a, there's a number of different functions for these kind of feathers. So if Archaeopteryx is the earliest known flying bird, why then do you think that modern birds have, have essentially dropped their feathered trousers? Well, as I said, it's not necessarily that all modern birds have, have dropped the, the trousers. There are um, some groups like birds of prey that, that have these kind of feathered trousers, what Archaeopteryx shows us, there was an idea not uh, published not too long ago that basically like a lot of the early birds or early flying animals had long hind limb feathers that were basically kind of like used as a, as a second wing. And the non-aerodynamic function of these feathers in Archaeopteryx clearly contradict that idea. So it seems that feathers had, had quite a few different functions and um, depending on of course what the the animal needed let's say these structures were there and they could be recruited for the function that was that was needed. That was Oliver Rauhut. To check out photos of the Archaeopteryx skeleton complete with imprints of its feather trousers head to nature.com slash nature. Coming up in this week's research highlights, fossilised poo sheds light on Neanderthal's diet secrets and Indonesia is losing more forest each year than Brazil. But first, think back to when you were a teen. Parties with your friends, music and dancing and drinks. Experimenting with alcohol is, for many, part of growing up. But some teens take to drinking heavily, causing damage to the individual, to their families and often foreshadowing alcohol dependence in adulthood. In fact, if someone's drinking regularly by age 14, there's a 40% chance they'll be an alcoholic later in life. So teenage binge drinking is a serious public health problem. But how to predict whether a teen is going to drink heavily, either now or in the future? Well, a team of researchers and one giant data set have proven it's possible. They fed it to a computer information from the Imagen study, an international project collecting all kinds of data on teenagers. That included brain imaging, questionnaires and genetic info. The computer looked at patterns and then used those patterns on a new data set to predict binge drinkers from a different group of teens. I sat down with author Hugh Garavan of the University of Vermont. A high percentage of kids have tried alcohol by age 14, but the majority don't develop alcohol problems. But a certain subset does. 
So to us, that's the interesting question. What is it about that subset that, if you will, perhaps puts them at a special risk to escalate to higher levels of, of alcohol and drug use? And what can neuroscientists like yourself uh, contribute to this picture? Well, neuroscientists, I think, are only one part of it. If you think about why teenagers drink or why some teenagers drink too much, there's going to be a lot of reasons. Environmental reasons, you know, do they grow up in a household with lots of alcohol? Do their friends drink? The social pressures? There might be genetic reasons. I mean, we know that alcoholism itself is highly heritable. There will probably be personality reasons. You know, kids who are more impulsive or who score higher on sensation thinking are more likely to drink. So there's a lot of reasons. The neuroscience angle of it, I guess, will be trying to address to what extent are there differences in brain function that might put people at risk. So we know from other drugs that, you know, certain brain systems might code for how rewarding or how much you know, pleasure you experience when you uh, drink alcohol. So that's the bit that we can contribute. You know, are there, in fact, vulnerabilities that you can see in terms of these brain systems? And in light of that, of course, your study takes account not only of neuroscience but of plenty of other factors. Could you tell me a little bit about how you organised the study and what it involved? So there are recruitment and testing sites in Ireland, England, Germany and France. We have recruited about 2,400 14-year-olds, as well as lots of personality and clinical and cognitive measures. We have brain imaging, so brain function, brain structure. We have genetic analysis on these kids as well. So then with this very large sample, the question that we asked was, can we identify from the data that we get at age 14, which kids are likely to go on and be drinking heavily by age 16? And the criterion we used was that they had been drunk at least three times by age 16. And then essentially with this data set, uh, you were able to, um, in some ways, predict the future. So what were the upshots from your, from your study then? What did you find were the best predictors of alcohol misuse, binge drinking in this case, in a 16-year-old taken from 14-year-old's data? The first upshot is that a lot of different variables had predictive power. So we had personality factors, we had some genetic factors, some brain imaging factors. That said, some variables did seem to do better than others. And interestingly, the variables that did best were, in many cases, the easiest ones to obtain. So personality measures, which you can obtain with you know, relatively easy paper and pencil tests, are very, very good predictors. So again, uh, sensation-seeking, impulsive, not being especially conscientious, neuroticism, these measures prove very, very good predictors. The other big domain that was especially predictive was the history measure. So by history, we're including both the individual's personal history, so primarily measures of lifetime stressful events, and then also we're including measures like prenatal exposure to alcohol or family history of alcoholism or drug use. So that was the second kind of big domain. And then finally, I guess the third biggest domain would be the uh, brain systems. So we're finding some frontal lobe systems involved in reward and also some sort of actually motor systems involved in inhibitory control, that those were the best. So those three domains, brain, personality, and history, uh, seem to be the best predictors of future drinking. Teenagers are famously very subject to peer pressure. I mean, how much of an effect does that have? Did you take that into account? Really good question. Short answer, no. It's one, I think, of the limitations in our study, is that we don't have very good estimates on that sort of social peer influences. You know, we know from other research that those things are important. You know, the drug use levels of your peers is a predictor of how much alcohol and drug use level that you're going to have. 
And it's, it's, it's simply one of those um, decisions we have to make when we're designing a battery of tasks. I mean, the data we collected, we, I think, have something like 3,000 personality questionnaire type measures on these kids. So some stuff just didn't get included in the final cut. And this was one of the things we don't have. And finally, between the ages of 14 to 16, it's not very long, but it's a pretty influential period in a lot of teenagers' lives. What could be done in that sort of short space of time, or would you envisage interventions being a kind of longer-term thing? So you're right. It is a critical period for every year that you can delay the onset of alcohol use. You get something like a 10% savings in the likelihood. So as an aside, when people talk about interventions, you know, just delaying people drinking by six months or a year is actually a very, very substantial intervention that would have very, you know, vast actually economic consequences, beneficial consequences. I think what ultimately one could do in terms of the educational side of things is if we can identify the profile of kids who are most at risk, I think even in an individualized way, giving that sort of information, it would have fairly substantial effects in reducing subsequent alcohol and drug use. That was Hugh Garavan of the University of Vermont. Still to come, we hear how the First World War afforded women jobs in science, but still left them struggling for equality. But now it's time for the research highlights, read by Michael Stacey. Brazil is known for its deforestation record, but it turns out Indonesia is clearing its forests faster, with nearly half happening in areas where clearing is restricted or banned. Researchers in the US looked at satellite images of Indonesian forests taken between 2000 and 2012. Natural forest cover decreased by 60,000 square kilometers during the period, surpassing Brazil. Indonesia recently implemented a moratorium on deforestation, but it would seem it hasn't had the intended effect. Read more in Nature Climate Change. Neanderthal poo suggests the human relatives dined on more vegetables than scientists previously thought. Studies of Neanderthal diet have painted them as big meat eaters, but dental data and fossilized plants have hinted their diet did include greens. Now, scientists have analyzed fossilized feces from a site in eastern Spain dating back 50,000 years. It's the oldest hominin poo found so far. The team spotted geochemical signals of the digested remains of both meat and plants in the poo. Future studies looking at Neanderthals' toilet habits should help clarify whether they chowed down on veggies every day or just on special occasions. Find that paper in PLOS One. In 1902, electrical engineer Hertha Ayrton was proposed as a Fellow of the Royal Society. She was a distinguished scientist, acclaimed for her studies on, among other things, electric lighting. But the Royal Society Council denied Hertha entry because she was married. Hertha wasn't the only scientific woman working in the early 20th century to experience sexism. Women wanting to aim high in science faced tough challenges. But then came the First World War. Women with scientific minds were called upon to help with the war effort. But instead of raising them to the level of equals with male scientists, the war effort was only a partial liberation. That's according to science historian Patricia Farah from Cambridge University in the UK. In Nature this week, as the centenary of World War I approaches, she writes about women and science in the Great War. I called Patricia and began by asking her what women's status was in science in pre-war times. 
there were very few women indeed who were involved in science. And there were a few isolated places where women could work. So, for example, at Cambridge, where there were two laboratories that were just for women, and also in Imperial College in London, there were several women. They could do research to some extent. What they weren't allowed to do was lecturing. And what sort of research were they carrying out? Every field, just as they are now. So, for example, Hertha Ayrton was a physicist, an electrical engineer. There were quite a lot of people doing the biological sciences, the chemical sciences, medical sciences. I mean, then as now, right across the spectrum, but there were just so few of them that every individual woman was really unique and very unusual. And what was their experience like in the workplace? I think it depended very much on who was in charge of the laboratory. So if they were lucky enough to be working in Cambridge in one of the women's only laboratories, I think they found life much easier and they were able to pursue their research very effectively. But some women were subject to sexism. In what sorts of ways did they experience this? Well, they often weren't allowed in the lectures, or for example, if they were studying medicine, they weren't allowed into a lot of the practical classes, so they couldn't dissect cadavers, and that was one problem for, in particular for doctors. In the sciences, women who were very highly qualified saw men who were less qualified getting their jobs. Even if they did manage to get a job, they were only paid two-thirds of the rate that men were paid. And what happened when war broke out? Initially, not very much, because most people thought that the war would be over in a few months. And although a lot of women did volunteer to help, that offer was turned down by the war office and by the government and by the army because they thought that it was completely inappropriate for women to do that sort of work. I think the women were very patronised. They were paid far less than the men for the same work. They were given the very boring, repetitive work. And that had a permanent effect on science even going on after the war. And what about for those women that did find jobs within research? Was it linked to their expertise and their field that they were working in before the war? The women in top levels of science, I think, were probably the only group that were affected in exactly the same way by the war as the men. That men and women in very high levels of research were taken away from their normal field and they were put in some related field to study something that would be directly relevant for the war effort. So, for example, if they were a chemist, they would be put into studying explosives. If they did pharmacology, they would have to study malarial drugs. So, for a few years their normal research was arrested, put on hold and they did research that was specifically related to the war effort. And just going back to the women that that were working at home and, and not abroad, what sort of research and what sort of activities were they carrying out? There was a lot of research into explosives. So at Imperial College, for example, there was a big trench st- Uh, dug in the gardens and women were working in there developing new kinds of explosive. They were testing poison gases. They were developing new kinds of munitions, a lot of work on drugs. So, So overall, the war enabled a lot more women to enter science. It was a temporary window of opportunity, if you like, and it certainly proved beyond doubt that women were absolutely capable of doing the work. So they were capable, but often confined to the more routine aspects of science. You said before that this has had a permanent effect on science. How? 
I think we have inherited a lot of unconscious attitudes that have come to us from the past, and we don't really realise they're there. So I'm very involved at Cambridge in programmes to encourage young women to do science. We're repeatedly trying to find me measures that can alter this discrimination. And it can be something as seemingly unimportant as the pictures you've got on the wall of a laboratory or the people who've written the articles that you've got in a bibliography that you give your students. There can be ways like that in which you're very subtly and certainly unwittingly in, um, affecting the position of women or the way that the women perceive themselves. Because for me, that is the point of doing history, is to try and improve the situation for future generations. That was Patricia Farah from Cambridge University. Finally this week, it's the news chat and in the hot seat. Reporter Lizzie Gibney joins me. Now, first, we're off to Australia, where last week there were protests by scientists. What were they protesting about? So they're protesting about some big cuts that came following the budget that was actually announced in May. So there's been a 16% cut to the Commonwealth Scientific and Industrial Research Organisation, the CSIRO, and that amounts to about 108 million US dollars. And what, what they're figuring out is actually there's going to be quite a huge number of workers who are also going to lose their jobs as a result of this. Many of them are summer sports staff, but many are also scientists. So overall, about 420 of the 5,500 workers um, could lose their jobs uh, just by next year and there could be around a thousand fewer staff than it had in 2013 after uh, after a few years of these cuts. So it really is quite a worrying time I think for scientists over there. So pretty deep cuts across the board or a particular scientists, um, a particular disciplines uh, affected more strongly than others? Well, there does seem to be a bit of a lean towards the environmental sciences, climate change as well. Um, so there has been in particular a, a 20 million Australian dollar cut to the Australian Climate Change Science Programme. Um, and also the uh, the Australian Institute of Marine Sciences is going to lose another um, 8 million or so from its, from its budget. So there does seem to be a particular slant that these areas are the ones that are being hard is hit by the cuts. And some commentators have been tempted to say this is ideological rather than just, you know, a financial cut. Well, the thing is, it comes on the back of the election of, of Tony Abbott last year, um, the, the right wing new prime minister. And it does seem to be kind of no coincidence that as soon as he was elected, there was a few things he did. Those included getting rid of a specific um, science minister. So I think they've, they've always had a science minister since the 1930s and, and there, there isn't one anymore. He also immediately abolished um, the Climate Change Commission and uh, is trying to close the Climate Change Authority. One of the interviewees for the story, um, a guy called Peter to Doherty, who's a Nobel laureate um, and an immunologist, he said um, the government seems to be at best naive about, about how science works and at worst indifferent or even contemptuous of science and scientists. So there's a real worry in Australia at the moment that this isn't just about a lack of, of funding. I mean, there's austerity all around the world, but this might actually be targeting some specific areas of science. Now, as you mentioned, since Tony Abbott came into power, there have be already been cuts to science, the budget, um, the latest budget makes that worse. Um, what's in the future for Australian science? The budget is looking like it might drop below um, the 8.5 billion Australian dollar mark for the first time in five years. That, coupled with having no science minister at the moment, is really creating an atmosphere where people are worried about the future, perhaps, of Australian science, if it's got any kind of strategic direction and whether it might, well, lose its place. It's, it's quite high standing in international science. Right, well, onwards to a slightly more sparky story, a new 
NIH project that's about to be announced uh, next week. This is about so-called electroceuticals. Mm, it's a nice name, isn't it? So we know about things like pacemakers, you know, the idea that we have some kind of device that activates or blocks bundles of nerve cells. Well, this is an idea that actually now that we've got some, we've advanced the kind of miniaturization technology, we might be able to do a lot more with devices like this. So the NIH, they've announced a roughly $250 million um, initiative that's going to both map the um, electrical wiring within the body, but also help to develop some some more devices along these lines. There's also a, a similar initiative that, that GSK, the pharmaceutical company, is pioneering at the moment. So maybe they're seeing a, a future outside of pharmaceuticals and in this this kind of device domain. And they're really exciting, these, these devices. So they, they seem to be doing, um, taking a really new approach to, to some classic problems. So a couple that have just been approved by the FDA include one that stimulates the air muscles um, in people with sleep apnea. So um, you can regulate the breathing of that person using one of these little devices. And also another one is a, a weight control device. So it gets implanted between the esophagus and the stomach and, and stimulates the, the vagus nerve to make a patient feel full. So there's some quite exciting new areas that they seem to be approaching. As with all of these things, a bit more background information and, and knowledge is a helpful thing. And the NIH project, it seems, is targeted towards really mapping, I suppose, the the wiring diagram of a human. Exactly. So we we know that these things seem to work, but there, there isn't much knowledge about exactly the mechanisms that underlie it, so exactly why they work. Um, we we know that they, they send electrical pulses to, to, to nerve cells, and that alters the commands that the organ receives and, and controls its function, but actually teasing apart um, the hundreds of signals that are going on and exactly which, one, which nerves we need to focus on is a real challenge. So that's something that the NEH hopes to be able to achieve over the programme. And it, uh, we should mention just before we finish chatting that it's, it's got one of those lovely names that's kind of a really forced acronym. It's called SPARC, S-P-A-R-C, for Stimulating Peripheral Activity to Relieve Conditions. That's it. <laughs> which I just think is lovely. It is lovely. I wonder how long they, they took coming up with that. <laughs> now, this new project, um, SPARC, will be looking at several conditions and it turns out that these things could have the potential to treat an, an alarming amount of disorders, in fact. Well, exactly. We, we, we don't really know. There are some which are quite obvious targets, but the, the GSK project is looking at 20 different disorders and these are things like you know, cardiovascular disease as well as arthritis and cancer. So we, we really don't know. We don't know how many of those obviously are going to prove successful, but they seem to be worth trying. And the NEH project is looking specifically at five organ systems, although they've, they've not picked which those are going to be yet. So who knows really which direction this is going to take us in. Write to the NIH, vote for your favourite organ. <laughs> All right. Um, thank you very much, Lizzie Gidney, for coming in. More as always at nature.com slash news. That's it for now. Tune in next week when we'll hear how the Cuban tree frog is inspiring ways to save threatened amphibian species. In the meantime, for those interested, you can listen to this year's podcast from Nature celebrating the Eppendorf Young Investigator Award, which each year celebrates a young biomedical researcher. I'm Thea Cunningham. And I'm Kerry Smith.